Alright, this is Talking With Strangers, and Joseph just came by, Joe, and uh, he wanted to share some thoughts. Actually, uh, that's not accurate. Uh, the the, the uh, broadcaster asked me if I wanted to, so that's the first misrepresentation, but that's alright. Okay. We'll go on from there. Yeah. We want to make sure that the fundament is not contrary sure. to fact. Yeah. All right, so you ask me a question and I'll respond. Yeah. What do you think about empathy? Is there enough of it? How do we get more of it? The thing is that um, you can express your concept of feeling, all right? So, um, I mean, a feeling is not objective. It's subjective. See? So if you want to say, do you experience empathy? If you ask that to a person, you're asking for their point of view about maybe the meaning of the word and if they think that they uh, have that experience, an emotional feeling related to that. Uh, so what are you asking specifically? Whether I think that's a word in the dictionary, whether you think, what you're asking me if I think I've ever felt it, clarify. Have you ever felt it? Um, I have to say I, fe I felt sympathy. Right? Now, according to my mom, so if you see something being mistreated, then subjectively you have a reaction. Now, the typical experience is when you see somebody swatting a child, okay, like in a supermarket or something, brutally uh, torturing a kid. And it can be mental too. All right, uh, so then you have a dramatic subjective self-generated reaction now I don't know is that empathy I feel sorry for that person so I think that's sympathy right so I don't know I mean empathy is kind of like transferring yourself in some way into the emotions or experience of that person or you could say it's shape-shifting in a certain modern new age sense I guess the better question is, do you think people understand you fully, Joe? Just about who you are and what you're about. Uh, no, I don't think so. Is that ever, is that tough for you? Is it? Well, okay, so um, there's, you know, the two kinds of poverty. There's obviously the lack of uh, the needs of survival, you know, food, clothing, and shelter. And if those aren't satisfied, of course, um, you're not worried about what other people understand uh, because you're searching for, you know, uh, one of those things. It doesn't leave you alone. It's a kind of suffering. Uh, so if you don't have housing, you know, if you don't have food. So once those three things are satisfied, isn't this, what is this, uh, the Maslow's hierarchy yeah. of needs? Okay. Uh, so then now you're seeking uh, something beyond that. You know, your mere survival. Now, uh, you'll notice, because you're young, but the more you age, all right, the more uh, you come up with uh, your non-compatibility with all of the values, you know, of the social system. 
Uh, so eventually, if you're not married, you know, or you don't have a dog, uh, you notice that you're being marginalized, and pretty soon you're invisible. Okay. Uh, so, um, in terms of not being understood, it's better to cope with not being understood uh, earlier in your life because then you have a, a head start in what's going to happen to you later in your life. But um, uh, I, th I agree, you know, with Jean-Paul Sartre. I agree that we're in the grip of uh, an existential crisis. And then, of course, now we have the postmodern crisis. And uh, people have proposed that uh, beyond postmodernism, now there's a new philosophy to interpret uh, the dilemma of the individual. Now, I think if you travel a lot, you go to you know different countries, and you experience the people, you experience the culture, and I think the word that's ascribed to uh, the meaning of a people is the ethos. So if I have an ethos with my uh, cultural group, my tribal group, then your question of whether I have an interpersonal, if I have people who individually care about me, I think that is kind of relative. What's more important to understand is, do I have a shared experience you know, of the meaning of my uh, community or my society? Uh, of course, the whole idea of postmodernism is that is completely destroyed. If we jump to, I think I saw your uh, the social media uh, improve personal relationships. I think we can just jump to what uh, is a brilliant term, and I didn't coin it, but it's called the mental holocaust. Okay, all right. And uh, so uh, I would have to ask you. I want your personal, subjective, self-generated, spontaneous input. If you think that the internet is a mental holocaust. I would not myself describe it as a holocaust. I think there are downsides to everything, but I do think the upsides are, it's important to consider those as well. Um, the way I try to use it is through documenting social experiences, hence social media. And that's through my project what I'm trying to show is you can you can learn about people and meet people, it's easier than you think. Now, I think there are ways that people themselves know that they're using it, that they wish they were not using it, but that's not for me to tell them how to use it, but it, it's definitely having an impact on the way we communicate and relate with people, whether we like it or not. And, you know, whether it goes away or not isn't really in my control, but it is nice becoming aware of how I'm using it and how I could try to use it for good more than anything. So did you, you, you must have seen the documentary on YouTube that's called 5G Apocalypse. You must be aware of that, you've seen that. So uh, yeah, I, I would suggest that you take a look at that and uh, see what it says about the effect of microwaves on little kids. And uh, you see the kids in their carriages, you know, with their their big uh, smartphones sitting on their lap, you know, mesmerized. Uh, so according to the scientific literature, uh, this is going to cause birth defects and sterilization, you know, of many generations of uh, people. Um, 
So, do you ever hear of uh, Lewis Mumford? No. Yeah. So, you know about the Luddites? Heard, but fill me in, please. So, uh, I guess, you know, uh, around, what, 1500 Columbus? It's Columbus Day, right? So, you know, it's uh, a good time to uh, remember that uh, mass production comes into existence uh, through the printing press. And uh, you can look it up, I don't remember, it was invented around that time. You know, all these events coalesced then. And also, uh, of course, you know, one of the the great uh, breakthroughs, uh, uh, propelling forces was the mechanization of weaving. Uh, And uh, so the Luddites were in England, and when they started telling them to find another job because machines could uh, do what they were doing, they rebelled and uh, they destroyed some of the machines. And uh, obviously, yeah. Oh, fill fill me in. Do you know any details that I don't remember? I, I just remember reading about this in my AP European history textbook. Um, how they were destroying, yeah, like you said, the technology and rebelling. But what for again? Okay. All right. So. Yeah, there's the the uh, um, the famous the novel Ishmael, okay. Which you know, if we weren't in the internet uh, era, then everybody your age you would know like the basic sort of literary milestones, you know, that came out of the '60s and '70s, right? Here we have some kind of a parade of uh, uh, non non African non. Uh, Caucasian people. Yeah, they're just they're just here exploring. Yeah. No, it's all kinds of different people, and they all have uh, little blue name tags on them. And nobody, there's a guy with a smile. So that was one in uh, 75 people who had a slight grin on their face. That's that's pretty good. What do you think about that? Um, okay, so. We're, we're starting to digress and go in a lot of different directions. So if we can remember what I think about the general mood of the people, we'll reserve that and let's go back and talk about uh, the Luddites and how that pertains to the novel Ishmael. And that, uh, so in Ishmael, he, he kind of takes the Cain and Abel uh, story and he turns it into the events of the Mesopotamian, you know, uh, bread basket, which at the time, whatever, it's how many centuries, I mean, how many millennia ago, I don't know. So 10 or something like that, you know. Babylon, Babylon, Baghdad. All right, so there was uh, the, uh, the, the semi-nomads and then the agriculturalists. And of course, you know about the Hollywood movies, one of their favorite plots is that the sheep farmers and the cattle herders, they uh, start competing for the land. And the cattle want the open land, they're nomadic, and the farmers need fenced land. All right. So uh, this is what the guy, I forgot his name, who wrote that book, he's positing that the big change you know, in human relations is when you transition from the, the uh, nomadic or semi-nomadic to the agricultural uh, system. And then the you know the Archimedes screw, 
one of the most important inventions in the history, recorded history, um, because uh, the impulse towards power, you know, requires uh, drones, uh, soldiers, and the soldiers have to be fed, but they don't grow their own food. So the relationship of uh, creating surplus food, right, through agricultural technology, was uh, on the high on the agenda, you know, of the domineering nation states. Right, you can raise armies if you can feed them. And so the Archimedes screw was like the first vast improvement in uh, the irrigation. Uh, you could lift water efficiently, and so um, you could start producing food to feed your Roman soldiers. Yeah. So in the old time, as represented in, there's a famous movie, Japanese movie, I know, I'm sure people have covered this in anthropology, that uh, when people were, you know, uh, surviving off the land, they were watching the other tribal groups, and they could see what their population was. So, if you're, you have a certain sustainable existence off the land, the food, you know, the hunting, and then somebody else starts to procreate faster than you, all right, then what they're telling you is that they have a greater right, okay, to expand uh, their identity system, you know, their way of living than you do. So that's a challenge to war. So, so everybody can see who is uh, imposing some kind of belief that they should uh, procreate, out-procreate, and take, you know, a greater portion of the material base of survival. So, in those times, if somebody did that, uh, whatever the intervention was, you could expect some kind of retribution. Because the fundamental primitive concept was that if you're challenging my food supply, okay, then you're challenging my right to exist. So, the only thing to do is to resist that, you know, in kind. So, how does this relate to social media? Oh, wait, wait. So... What in a million ways? So I mean, this is you got you got to get back to the philosophy, the fundamentals, you know, and not quibble over all these differences, political differences, and, and uh, the social media is dictating what people have in their minds. I mean, this conversation is very interesting for people, young people, to understand, particularly in relationship to the '60s and you know, early '70s, right? Which was a renaissance, you know, that still is commercially reiterated and revived endlessly in order to hook people into the idea that there's something creative going on you know they always link into that period but anyway so so you have agriculture and agriculture right you have control to a certain degree except for the vicissitudes of nature of uh, your supply you know of the fundamental requirement which is food as Gandhi said famously, the common person needs to work for their food. It's a lot you can extract from that idea. Okay, so I'm on the land, you know, in the United States, you know, it was 90% agricultural, right? You know, from the immigration of the Europeans, that's what they wanted to do, the Swedes, the Germans, they're all agriculturalists and they came from uh, Europe and they had much skill in that area in animal husbandry and you know growing crops and everything and that's a lifestyle I mean how long has that been going on now, I don't know 20 30 40,000 years it's a very old uh, trade 
uh, and takes a lot of knowledge, you know. So uh, the Industrial Revolution occurs, right, Make, mostly through the advance in metallurgy. Yeah? That's why the French, those are really pointing out. That's why the French, uh, I mean, the Germans are so famous, you know, because they had the most developed alchemical tradition in Western civilization, so they had uh, the best steel. And to this day, they have the best steel. So uh, the people were doing what they had always done, and they had control over, you know, the means of their survival. They were uh, the originators, right? They were the producers, and in, you know, consort with nature. So that's very satisfying. You know, you're communing with nature, and you're directly receiving. And that you could see how people would be very religious. I mean, if you've got your hand, you're participating in the process that you think is alive, it's a living process, and you think that living force is somehow divine and proceeds from some secret mystical area, and then you're participating in that and the seasons and everything, and you have your family, you know, that's very genuine. So then, of course, you got the Industrial Revolution, and America is really the story, it's the fulcrum of understanding what happens when people are slowly convinced and uh, pogromed and, uh, you know, pushed off the land. So if somebody comes to you and they say, okay, you can't grow your own food anymore, that's the thing, okay, well, what am I going to eat? You know? And they said, okay, we're going to have these new jobs. Factory jobs. We have we have these jobs. So look, you can buy your food. We're gonna give you these little pieces of paper and metal, and then because we don't need it anymore, and that's when you you start to have indoctrination that human labor, right, is inferior to the efficiency of machine labor. And that's a huge topic. It's really interesting. It has to do with photography, the creation of the assembly line. Right. But anyway, you can see the state of people now, and I'll get back to that in a second. So they said, okay, you can have these factory jobs. All right, so now, of course, Karl Marx, he got stuck on this. Because Karl Marx said, oh, you can have an egalitarian uh, civilization, society, because all you need to do is have the people, the workers, bind together, create unions, and control the means of production. At that time, it was factory means. So, at that time, the, the governance of society relied on right, people working, their labor. All right, so now, of course, we have this phenomenon where uh, everything's uh, being taken over by, uh, you know, mechanization. The assembly line has, you know, assembled a system where people are not needed anymore. So that's one of the main crises that's facing humanity, if you want to say. We'll just put that aside as another really huge digression, you know, which, of course, is completely absent, really, from any discourse that's going on in our society right now, you know, I mean, for very obvious reasons, because contemplating a solution to that really stretches the imagination. Okay, so now you have people working in industrial settings, they're producing, they're in factories, and for a very short period of time, what are you going to say? From uh, the beginning of the 19th century, you know, to the beginning of the 20th century, people, they made a way of life based around uh, industrial production. And that's all the rust belt of America and all those beautiful houses. If you go there, if they haven't plowed them under now, you know, and you see the lifestyle of the people in the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and they were really living high on the hop. 
No. All right, so now you get mechanization, of course, in the 80s, beginning of the 80s, they started, because of Nixon's deal with the Chinese, they start taking the factories, and everybody's in wonderment, oh, wow, yeah. they're disassembling the factories, and they're taking them over there. Gee, what's that all about? Now, uh, if you see the role of Bill Clinton at that time, right, uh, he was able to uh, postpone... <laughs> You know, the hard reality that you're losing your status as the industrial productive, you know, uh, center of the world by the digital revolution. You know, so the digital conversion, uh, you know, from the mechanical storage and papers, you know, to modern storage, that absorbed a lot of the labor force. And it also gave people this, this concept that, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to have these new jobs. All right. And you can actually go back to uh, Jerry Brown's run for presidency and his platform, and that was in uh, 82. So Jerry Brown, he ran for president, and uh, he actually won the um, Iowa and New Hampshire primaries, Jerry Brown, with his platform. It's very interesting. He talked about changing everything to renewable energy and how that would absorb the labor force and everything like that. But that's another digression. So now you have a time where you're, you're saying, okay, you don't have your job anymore, right? So if you if you say, well, I don't have a job, what am I going to do? They say, well, you're going to twist in the wind, buddy, you know? And a lot of people are writing about this, and it's traveling all over the Internet. Right? So if you translate back that to a morality that existed, um, you know, uh, 50 years ago, or 100, 200 years ago. Okay, you're taking the food off my table. You're negating my ability to provide for myself and my family. Now, if this happened 500 years ago, the retribution would be that I would, you know, rise up and I would kill you. Now, if you understand that, what are the revolutions I spot? Land reform, land reform, you know, uh, Pancho Villa, right? Mexico, land reform. So, who owns the land in the United States? Giant corporations, right? International Cargill, giant corporations. They, they own whatever, 98% of the uh, tillable land is owned by those people. You don't see people here going land reform. You do in Honduras. Some of these third world countries, certainly in Bolivia, you know, they're up in arms about land reform. Um, so now that's very interesting, of course, because here, here you have a linkage, right, between the internet, which is cyberspace, okay, and physical space, and how domination, the accumulation of power, requires the uh, control of physical space. But then, as soon as you got to the point in the Industrial Revolution where you can automate everything and people, the, the physical body becomes obsolete, oh, now you all are saying you have a new terrain. You have a new real estate. It's an electronic real estate. And you can express your existence. Your identity can be created by uh, electronic space. You know, whatever that is. A lot of movies have covered this and gone into it. It's a really interesting thing to explore. Uh, you know, which has the greatest emotional you know, um, uh, satisfaction. Three is this three-dimensional reality? Because there's depth. What do you think? I'm not too. I'm not too good with uh, these these basic tenets of uh, Western science. Yeah.
Yeah, I think so. I think uh, a screen is two-dimensional, yeah. yeah. You want to bring in, you know, virtual reality. That's a big, big thing now. Okay, like, like this. Okay, uh, so you could say that this. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I know... I love all the history you're saying. It's, it's very fascinating. But, you know, for, for people who are listening, maybe they're younger, maybe everyone who's listening has a phone. How do you think that... Because I, I remember we started, I asked you, oh, whoops. The Holocaust, the mental Holocaust, is what you said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah just add, you know, I can talk like this pretty much, I think, without any uh, interruption. Because all of these things are so involved, and you need to link them to everything that has happened. And you can see how, you know, if you want to say 1984 is the template. I mean, even what's his face, uh, Noam Chomsky. You know, he re he went back now in his 80s and he rereads George Orwell. So people have been talking about this uh, for a long time. And of course, one of the most interesting analogies is uh, the Time Machine by H.G. Wells. Okay, so H.G. Wells, you have a system where um, people, everybody's in their togas, you know, they go back in time and they're raising the people uh, to be eaten. And you have this completely controlled, benign environment, and you raise the people up to their juicy age of, you know, their 20s. And then the Morlocks, right, they come out. So uh, the, the anticipation of where things are going, a famous book by, uh, you know, you have T.S. Eliot and Wasteland, you know, and uh, you have, of course... George Orwell, the book, the novel, Keep the Apidastra Flying, which is uh, an analogy to the fact that Western civilization, you know, they kind of believe that it's doomed because of its uh, fundamental flaws and its infrastructure, not enduring. So, uh, in uh, the uh, answer to your question is that, okay, so the internet is killing you. Right, and uh, so you're becoming uh, a new kind of a slave. A new feudalism is coming in. But what's really exciting and interesting is that you know, in uh, that guy Terence McKenna. If you listen to Terence McKenna, okay, you know, obviously he says the word, the you know, because in English we don't have too many words for our physical existence. Now he always says the body. You can listen to his lectures. He never says body. You know, he always delays it and takes the phonemes apart. So why is he doing it? What is the body? What is the body? So of course, we can go off on this, you know, a tangent, is that there's no thing as the body. The body is made up just like Toyota is made up, you know, and religion is made up. It all comes out of the indoctrination process, which is a brainwashing process, which has to do with... Uh, existence itself. The very fundament of our existence is that we are brainwashed. All communication is brainwashing. 
So for when people say you're being brainwashed, you see, that's completely elusive. That's 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 a, that's obfuscation. What isn't brainwashing? Now you're saying, well, that's that's brainwashing for a malefic purpose. Okay, well, now you're defining it and you understand. But everything is some kind of perspective which is foisted upon you when you're a baby, a child, you know, when you're in utero. Somebody's uh, convincing you that reality looks a certain way. So what is the body? I mean, the body is just a, is a subjective interpretation. Or you could say, subjectively, it's whatever you think it is. So you see, now they're, they're telling you that the body is inferior to the machine. All right? And if you're... You sweep, don't think so. If you're, well, if you're sweeping the floor... No, if you give me something else to do with my body and my mind after you take away my paint, you know, like manufacturing job where I'm breathing in toline and going to get, you know, 80 different neurological things. Yeah, I'm going to listen to you because you're telling me what I'm supposed to do with myself. If you're telling me, right, that... You know, what is this, Galen or something, you know, where the mind and the body are different? I mean, isn't this the reassertion of some kind of social Darwinist trip where the physical world is inferior? And then there's what they call the brain. And you have people at Harvard, I mean, you know, that uh, from childhood have chased the carrot to escape the stick. And they are going to tell you that they're going to download their brain into a supercomputer. I mean, you know, like whatever, post, post, postdoctoral candidates in physics, and they drink a lot of coffee, which is another digression. Where'd they say that? Oh, no, I mean, uh, no, I mean, people are saying it all the time. They, they, they totally believe that, you know? How do you know? I've, I've listened to the guy firsthand give the lecture is an astronomer at Harvard. There's a lot of people that say that. It's a meme that's been around for a long time. Okay. Uh, anyway, whether they can do it or not, really, I'm not an expert. So the breakthroughs in downloading yourself into a machine, I really shouldn't be relied so, upon to get I'm fascinated to hear, because you said you're into existentialism. And you've into existentialism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you read, you've read it. You've studied it. No, I really, I really don't even know what I'm talking about. But certainly, well, I have, I have well, some analogies. Invert that concept. The other. The other. Uh, if you talk about the other in uh, Western intellectual discourse, you're uh, referring to what's known as uh, the doppelganger. The doppelganger. Yeah. Yeah. And it uh, has to do with the idea that people have. Uh, we might say more than one body. So, what do you think about the other? What's your reference to it? It's all around us, but the other is nothing to be afraid of. Because you were the other, I was the other to you. It's the strangeness of a stranger. That's not really strange, but we just think it is because we don't sit down and have discourse. If you think it is, it is strange, right? Right. Well, that contradicts what you just said. You said you think it's strange. In other words, it's not really strange. But who's the authority to say whether it's strange or not? No one is. Well, if no one's the authority, it's strange if you think it is, and it's not if you don't. 
because you're the authority to say what's strange and what isn't. Right. All right, sweet. Okay. What was your name? It's true. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Jonathan? I guess for me then. So for me, people are not strange because everyone is has a brain like I do. Yeah, there's no virtue in, right. in you feeling strange or not feeling strange, I guess. I mean, uh, that's uh, variety is the spice of life, right? Yeah. Uh, so, um, so, human beings right now, their labor, slave labor, any kind of labor, is now obsolete. Alright, so... Well, let's also remember, you just told me that my strangeness was in my perception. So are you saying that this is... No, I'm saying that the feeling, the experience of whether things are harmonious, if you want to use some kind of adjective, right? Is that an adverb? adverb? Harmonious, all right, or they're dissonant. We use it for musicology, right? There's dissonance. Uh, there's displacement. There's a sensation of stress, all right? We could say there's a subtle fright or terror about existence, but it's attenuated, so that makes it strange. It's not really uncomfortable, it's weird. So we can write a book about that, right? In the, but nobody will read it. That's okay, because it'll be on the internet for 20 minutes, and I'll feel like, people know me. I'm being recognized five seconds and that's better than nothing man so to say so uh, the body is what now scientifically 60% of your nerves are in your skin they're not in your brain a third of the neural networks which are called, considered to be in the central nervous system are in your heart that's why when they give heart transplants to people, they want Pepsi instead of Coke, and they like golf instead of Monday Night Football, and there's all kinds of personality um, strangeness, or no, metamorphosis. Joe, I'm curious, where do you get all these thoughts? Uh, well, the best way to understand that is from human design, okay? The system uh, that comes from Ra Uruhu, uh, that that was spontaneously generated in his mind in an experience in a cabin on Ibiza in 82 during a supernova and then they what? yeah they combined the three the three ancient systems Kabbalah is that how you say it? if you're uh, in no but where do you person? use specifically well you're I where mean do they come from so anyway I was in uh, college right and I had to like pick out stuff to do, expletive deleted, and then I uh, decided, you know, somehow, I mean, you know, it seemed relevant, you're studying, like, heart humanities, so then I had to figure out uh, a paper, a theme of a paper, so I did it on artistic inspiration, and then I went into the stacks, as they were called, up in the library, and fell asleep, and ate peanuts, and, like, got really bad gastritis, and stayed up there and gathered big handfuls of books and I read all these books about uh, authors who wanted to extrapolate no is that the right word about um, inspiration where do ideas come from and also uh, you probably don't know there's this T 
TV, um, internet TV guy, and he has a Freeman TV. Okay, so, and then they call him Freeman Fly. He's a very interesting fellow, but one of uh, his guests did a program, it's on there, Where Do Thoughts Come From? Okay, so, uh, where, where do thoughts where do come, come from? from? Uh, I don't consider oh, thoughts to be uh, non-material. They're real. I, they come from... Uh, you can ask me where did that brick come from, but you can ask me where did existence come from. I mean, if you want to have like a Western approach, you can say they came from the Big Bang. Um, now, uh, you can ask me what's my opinion of what a thought is, uh, and uh, I'll give you kind of a little mini lecture on how far I've come in understanding. Have you lectured before? Have you been a teacher? No, never. never. You have a. You should make a podcast, Joe, because all your thoughts here are extremely copious and deep, and complex. And I'm pre-digital. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you can you can still be digital and have these thoughts. No, I'm saying that I was. Uh, I, I uh, existed before right. the space was permeated by all these microwaves, which disturb people's attention span. And What's the evidence for that? Uh, when the girl puts the plant in the uh, waters, the plant with water that's been microwaved, it dies. If you put salt in the plant, it also dies too. Yeah, well, we have control over the, our salt intake, but we don't have no control over our, our uh, internet intake. Gotcha. Anyway. Well, have they done a con so, randomized okay. controlled trial? Uh, yeah, well, we can get phones. into what they, but we're, we don't want to go into they. We want to stay with the I, the me. So we want to say, uh, what is subjectivity? What is the individual? And, of course, this is touted as being... You know the the specific um, resurrection of uh, goodness, which is the promotion of the idea of I. And so, what is the personality? I have no idea. All right. Now we know if we let's reverse engineer this, uh, because uh, people used to go to a baseball game. Well, they were working 12 hours a day, six and a half days a week. So obviously they wanted leisure, you know. Leisure uh, was considered to be a wonderful, uh, what's that, uh, repast, uh, you know, release from the constant uh, work and effort and stress of the workday. Okay, so now we have uh, constant spectators uh, activities. In fact, the internet itself is really a spectator uh, activity. And uh, that's the whole idea of postmodernism. And the guy, the French philosopher, you know, the very famous guy that wrote the book, uh, Simulacra and Simulation, he, he, he covered the first Iraq war. This is called the Society of the Spectacle, right? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, as we say, is the body a part of the brain, all right? Or the brain and body separate? So when you're using your body, aren't you developing your brain? 
I think the double-blind studies on all the activities of children and learning would say absolutely. And you can go and see what the research is now in natural medicine and psychology and say that all the development of the brain is occurring simultaneous with physical activity. So when you start to confine the body right to being passive and merely watching existence, especially on these microwave-driven screens, you can see that they're really destroying the human being as we know it. And there's no, I mean, social media and everything like this. According to the double-blind studies, what she's doing is causing brain cancer, right? I mean, you can look, you just go and see. They, on that uh, documentary, the um, 5G apocalypse, they show you uh, excerpts of people testifying before the committees of the United States Congress, you know, experts in this subject. And they tell you and they show you the statistics of the cancer that's occurring. And they show you that all the cancers are happening where people are putting their cell phones on their body. So uh, it's very interesting, it's very important that so social Darwinism, right, uh, which was in what was the epoch of that, 1880s or so? Uh, so where do ideas come from? Uh, this is uh, a, a great, a great right. question. And I, I have to say... I think we keep going on. I, I think I have to say, I don't know where ideas come from. But in human design, they say you either have what they call an open head center or a closed head center. Okay, so I have an open head center. So that means I'm just picking up ideas out of the air.